Can you describe what white labeling means? It means doing all the work and then somebody else passes it off as their own. (laughs) I love that definition. (laughs) Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Yeah, buddy. Welcome back to the pod. As always, I am joined by the boss man. Are you there, buddy? Hey, how's it going? What's the situation over there? The situation over here is uh, since you left the property, a.k.a. the trailer on my property, <laughs> my kid will not stop asking about you. It's oh. ridiculous. At bedtime, where's Uncle Dan? At dinner time, where's Uncle Dan? I want to kiss Uncle Dan goodnight. I Jeez, never, I don't even get this much love. Never heard such fantastic news. All my work is paid off, and I've earned a spot in his heart. Uh, this is all I ever wanted. I don't even feel like I got to do the pod today, boss. Well, I'll tell you what else you've earned. A visit from us tomorrow to come to your pool. That's what's happening. <laughs> Yet another strategic move I am proud of. Looking forward to seeing you guys and looking forward to today's episode. What do you say, boss man? We jump into the deep end. This one was inspired by a recent Dynamite Circle discussion that got lively. And the members were talking about, you know, is it a downside or an upside to present yourself as an agency versus a freelancer when you're trying to get new clients? You got any quick thoughts on that one? I'm going to save those to the end. Actually, I just had a conversation with our team about this yesterday, believe it or not. So I'm going to save that for the end. That's a pro podcast move. Hat tip boss, man. So we'll loop down at the end of this one. But suffice it to say, this conversation was really interesting. And in and all that nuance of how you're presenting yourself, of course, is an enormous amount of business opportunity. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Ian, this one stuck with me because you can see the bare bones of this 1,000-day journey. The story is very granular, and I caught myself as I was having this conversation imagining what it might be to be in the first 1,000 days of my first business or a new business that I'm going to start. And it was just really sparked off those creative signals in me, including some clever tactics like finding that right team, or even using platforms like Upwork to find your ideal clients. Are you excited yet? Let's jump into it. So Boss Man and I will circle back at the end of the episode, and I'll let today's guest introduce himself. Yeah, my name is Jonathan Solorzano, and I run a team of web developers based out of Latin America. What do you mean Latin America? The majority of the team is Latin. A lot of them were Venezuelan. And with a lot of the turmoil that's going on over there, they kind of became digital nomads by force. So they live in Chile, they live in Peru, some of them live in Colombia. They all, well, I guess all of them are from Latin America. Is there anything specifically strategic about working with people from Venezuela? I think they have a lot of motivation, right? There's a lot of poverty in their country. And then them getting out and going to different countries, it's hard. Like they, a lot of countries don't want them there 
or they're taking jobs from people from Peru, for example, because they're willing to work for, for lower wage. So there's this uh, xenophobia in a lot of these Latin countries with Venezuelans. And what I found is giving them the opportunity to work remote, they've been really responsible. They've been really grateful for the job and they've done a really good job. Was this a strategic thing on your part or was it an accident? I wish it was strategic. I don't think I'm that smart. It was it was an accident. I started to scratch my own itch. I, I was trying to do anything to make money. And I was working with Indian developers, Ukrainian developers, and there was always this lapse in communication, right? I would tell them to do something and it'd never be exactly that. And then after my first DCBKK, actually, everyone talked about teams. And I remember I was like, man, I, like, I don't have a team. Like, I'm just working with these freelancers to get things done. Maybe I can build a team. And, and then I started thinking, well, you know, my family migrated from, from Guatemala. There's, there's got to be some sort of digital talent in Latin America. So I started my search on Upwork. I found guys in Costa Rica. And then I found a guy in Colombia. And then that guy in Colombia ended up being my first full-time employee, but he was actually Venezuelan. He referred me to one person, that person referred me to another. Next thing you know, the whole team is, is Venezuelan. How important is your Spanish language skills to working with Venezuelans? You know, I think that the Spanish is not the number one thing that, that makes us work well. I think it's the immigrant story, really, and being able to understand like the Spanish culture, like how it is in Latin America, that makes me connect with them almost on a level where they trust me. Because I feel like a lot of people that I've seen in, in, in our community go to Latin America, and there's not a lot of trust, maybe because they're like gringos, quote unquote. But I think it's that like they truly are like, oh, th this guy is just like us. The actual Spanish doesn't help. I think it's that background. How would you comment then on the talent differential? I feel biased. I mean, I work with a lot of these agencies that do have their own in-house American developers. And I don't see the quality being much different. What the benefit is of a, an American developer is really the understanding, the communication. I think that that's also what I bring to the table. And the problem is it's not, I'm trying to figure out how to scale it, is that I'm able to sit down with you, Dan, bring your ideas and then bring it back to the team and say, hey, this is what we're executing on, right? I think that's the benefit of an American developer. But the code is not, it's not, I don't see it as being better. I don't see them doing anything better. I actually think that some of my guys are better than some of the, the in-house developers we worked with, which, you know, has brought up some sort of weird stuff internally. What do you mean weird, weird, what weird stuff? Well, like, you know, like we'll go and fix some, some stuff for the agency's site, for example. And then the, the in-house developer will be like, why'd they do that? And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, it's like this power move. It's kind of scary if you imagine you're getting paid $120,000 at an agency and then some white label agency comes in and they're fixing your code. It's like, it's scary. They could take your job, you know, essentially. Yeah. And a lot of those actually developers got furloughed. With the three agencies that bring us the most business, I'd say like 60% of their dev team got furloughed because I think that, you know, it's more of a, a luxury to have, not a need to have. Before I ask you a little bit about yourself, can you lay out your company's main value proposition, like the name of your company and the sort of work that you do on a daily basis? 
Yes. So Solo Media Inc., I'd say our, our main value prop is that we are reliable web developers. We white label for a lot of agencies. Can you describe what white labeling means? Yeah. So white labeling, it means doing all the work and then somebody else passes it off as their own. <laughs> I love that <laughs> definition. <laughs> We like working with agencies because we don't have that. Maybe you've been guilty of this where you're looking for a developer and you're kind of just expecting them to get everything done. You're like, hey, I want this done. And you haven't really thought through your thoughts and ideas. We won't service those clients. We're not going to sit there and consult and try to figure out what it is you got you want to do. We want to work with the person that has thought through their ideas, maybe has worked with different developers before or has an internal team. And they're like, hey, this is what we want done here. Step A, B, C. And we can execute to a T. So generally, that's either agencies or companies that are like DIY. And then they're like, you know what? We're, we've grown so much. We're no longer DIY, but we know what it takes to get there. Let's hire this group of developers that can help us execute on that. And then the 80-20 really is mostly Shopify and WooCommerce. And I think WooCommerce, we, we mainly get into the B2B section where people are like, hey, we want different users to have different pricing when they log in and that kind of stuff. Shopify is more like the B2C custom designs with animations and all these really cool like CRO techniques or custom landing pages. It's a conversion rate optimization. In terms of white labeling for agencies, so you've got this agency that sells a e-commerce brand on, say, marketing and development on their website every month, and they're charging them probably five figures or something. And then that agency turns around and comes to you and says, like, the development portion, we don't want anything to do with. Exactly. So I'll give you an example of a, a, an agency we work with in Chicago. They might sell a Shopify store for $150,000. They sell them branding, they'll sell them design, they'll sell them marketing. And then they'll say, hey, can you guys execute on this design? But because the expectations of a $150,000 website are really high, like when we get the design, we have to match it. Like they call it pixel perfect. And then it has to functionally work. And the end user, which is the client, has to be able to edit their stuff. So essentially, we're making these custom themes for clients. And I want to get back to maybe some of the details of that. But can you give us a sense for the scope of your agency, whether that's like a revenue or a headcount or just a sense for what your business looks like? Yeah. So I think right now we have 10 people. We divide these 10 people into three groups. And these three groups kind of have their specialty. Some are better in WooCommerce, some are better in Shopify. And then we have like the real pros that do like custom web apps. In terms of revenue, I'd say with coronavirus, we, it was crazy. We had, we were kind of treading through like $15,000, $20,000 every month. And then February, right before coronavirus, I had sold $80,000. The agencies we were working with were like operating at a high level. They were asking if like, are you going to be able to start taking this kind of volume? And then coronavirus hit. So if you look at my QuickBooks, it's like 15, 20, and then 80, and then all the way back down to like, I was scared. It went down to 10, and now it's kind of creeping back up 15, 20,000 every month. So you said you have an immigrant story. Well, what's the story? 
I'm first generation. So what that means is my family came here from Guatemala. I'm the first you know, person to be born here. Where's here? Uh, in New York. Well, my, yeah, that's where my family migrated to New York, okay. in the United States. I think that that story in New York is pretty common. I've gone back to Guatemala and see how my family lives. And it's, you know, it, it's like, wow, I always feel a level of gratitude for the risk my parents took. I mean, us, you know, as digital nomads, quote unquote, we, we travel because we had that luxury. Like my parents did it because, you know, they, they were really looking for a better opportunity. So I've always, I've never taken that for granted. I've always wanted to make sure that I did my best to kind of make them proud and make their sacrifices worth it. So you must have disappointed them by deciding to become an entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, yeah, at first, yeah, for sure. They were definitely scared and they were like, oh man, why are you doing that? You know. Do you remember your entrepreneurial moment when something clicked for you? It's funny because I think my dad is an entrepreneur at heart. You know, when you guys talk about those car buying stories and negotiating, like my dad used to take me to do that with him. And we would go buy cars for fun. And then, you know, we'd fix them up or do a couple things and then sell them. And I remember that was when we were the most excited. Living in New York, like these big offices, they'll throw out a $10,000 chair. And I'm like, dad, bring that home. I can sell it. And we would be so excited about that stuff, right? And I realized that my dad is an entrepreneur at heart. I just don't think he ever had the, I think the luxury that I have, right? Because of what, how he came, he's always like, I need to be, make sure we're all safe first. So that's why I thank him for that. But I think that my whole youth, like from 11 to 18, was just me and my dad buying stuff and selling it anywhere that we could find it. And that was like my first entrepreneurial moment. But I didn't know that was a career until I started listening to podcasts and started seeing other people doing it. And I'm like, oh, man, like maybe I can do this for a living instead of having to, to have a job. What was the first moment that you thought you could actually do it? I started working at this company, ADP. Just wanted to cut in here to say that ADP is Automatic Data Processing Incorporated, which is an American provider of human resources management software and services. Now, back to the story. And ADP, I mean, it was cool because it's almost like you're an entrepreneur, but with a salary. So what that means is we were going out kind of like building our own book of business, visiting small businesses and trying to sign them up for our services. And when I started meeting these, these business owners, I was like, man, these, these guys, most of them don't have, don't have it together, first of all. Second of all, I saw a little bit of me in each of them. And then third, it was like some of these guys were making serious money. Like some of these guys had for example, landscaping business clearing, you know, 20 million a year and they could barely speak English. And I remember I'd go to work and tell everyone like, man, I'm, I'm going to start a business. Like this doesn't seem that hard. And everyone's like, ah, you know, everyone's like, why would you do that? I remember this one guy, he manufactured little parts for an airline industry. And that little part built him a huge business with his own warehouse and all this stuff. And I was like, Man, this that's cool. Like that's this is what I want to do. So what was your move? So I've always been like a computer guy. Like I've always liked playing online games. I you know, I I've, I've always known uh, like some light coding. I've always known. So 
I was like, okay, how can I make money online? I remember listening to the Pat Flynn podcast and it was like a good introduction, like, you know, SEO websites. And then I was like, let me just try and sell a website. And then I, I sold one of the, the clients that I was working with at ADP a website. And I was like, oh, this is easy. And then I did it to another one. And I was like, I could just do this. I just need to get some sort of retainer somewhere for, you know, 3,500 bucks and I'll be set. And I did. It took me about six months. And that was my, my, my go-to. If I can make 3,500 bucks a month, I'm good. Once I sold the retainer like that, I was, I was out. I always kept my expenses low. That goes back to my, my immigrant background. My father always taught me never spend more than you make. So I never did. And yeah, it was like that. Just selling to the clients that I was talking to in ADP. They already liked me. And I was actually providing a good service for them. They weren't online. And from there, I was off to the races. Talk to me about what a retainer looks like. I was trying to sell anything. I think I was trying to sell SEO. I was trying to sell ads. Like I was going to figure it out once I sold it, right? The first retainer was an e-commerce store. They were selling luggage. And they were working with this uh, large agency that they were paying like $8,000 a month for. And I was like, hey, look, like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to take business from these guys, but, you know, I, I started doing this work. Look what I did for, you know, this client and that client. Like, I'm willing to do it for half. And they, they were like, all right, well, let's try a month out. We won't pay you the first month, but if it works out, we'll move. And I did it for free for the first month. And they're like, yeah, perfect. Let's do it. You know, I hired some guys on Upwork to help me with SEO. I hired uh, some guys to help me with their AdWords. And then once I had that set, it was like a plug and play. Once I had that, those two freelancers helped me. I was like, okay, we're good to go. And this was three years ago? This was about three and a half years ago, yep. Okay, so you've been through your first thousand days. What sort of mess ups have you made in those thousand days? What sort of things would you want take backs on? I started with this really broad right? Try to offer anything online. And I remember there was this one big project. It was an e-commerce project. When I took it, I was excited because it was a lot of money. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to put a team together. I'm going to, you know, put some Indian developers here. That's where I'm going to make up my money because I'm going to find cheap development. And then I had a friend that worked at an agency that was a designer. So I said, I'm going to have him help me work on making this website. So bringing him on, was expensive, but it was the base of my whole learning on how to properly do a, a high quality website, right? Long story short, this project ended up costing me a lot of money. I lost maybe like $15,000 on it. The development was really bad. If I look at it now, it's probably really poorly coded. What I learned from that one basically built my business today, if that makes sense. It kind of took me down this, this route. How much was that project worth, by the way? It was a, a $40,000 project. What other sorts of things have you learned about positioning your agency that has helped you to become more profitable? You know, niching down and finding what I, what I find, it, what's enjoyable, right? And I think what was really enjoyable for me with the projects was just executing on the idea without having to do all the branding and I want to like, how does this color feel and all that? Like, I, I hate that stuff. I just like the idea of like, okay, like this is what we want it to do. Can we make it do it that way? Somebody else is going to show you what it looks like. So with that being said, I, I started looking for agencies. Let me take a couple of steps back. I think 
Upwork helped me really solve that. A lot of people hate on Upwork because they think it's cheap work, but that's where I'd say the majority of, of the business is being built for me. That's where I've made some of my best relationships with these agencies. How does it work? It's a numbers game, right? So I think that you got to talk to 20 people before you find somebody that you want to work with. I spend a lot of time sending out these proposals. I have a, a VA that sends out these proposals for me. And then we book calls with people and I speak to them. And maybe 5% of the time, it's somebody that is an agency that's like, hey, we have this troubled project that we outsourced and we need you to fix it. If you fix their problem, all of a sudden it gets to, you know, now you build this relationship because they're like, oh, this person knows how to solve problems. And then it evolves into let's give them projects or make them our trusted partner. So in other words, Upwork, which is like a freelancer website, is one of your primary sales channels. I'd say, yeah, I think it's like the 70% of our sales right now. We take relationships eventually come off of Upwork, but some of the best relationships we've met has been on Upwork. Why do I like it? There's two types of people on Upwork. There are people that are not really working through their thoughts, maybe, you know, like a single person just trying to get a Shopify store up. And then there's people like IT directors or project managers or agency owners looking to get good talent to fulfill work. If you've worked with freelancers before, you know that sometimes it's unreliable. So they're looking for somebody reliable. And those are the people I want to work with. I don't want to work with the first timer that's like, I just want some cheap labor. I want my site up, figure it out, and then I'll pay you. That's, that's not my ideal client. It's the person that's already, that needs to save their time and doesn't want to have the, the head bump of freelance, or they already did. They've already hired several freelancers. They're like, we need to get somebody good to solve this. Basically where I was when I got that $40,000 project. Right. So it sounds like there's some pros and cons because, of course, you know, there must be this temptation for you to go to the end client because you'd make a lot more money, I guess, or it, it seems like on the surface you would. <laughs> you know, I actually had, so this, one of the agencies in Chicago, he, he has a pretty big agency. I, I'm pretty sure he's probably like a $15 million agency. I went to visit him in Chicago. We went out for some drinks and he was like, Hey man, like, how do I know you won't start trying to take clients from me on the side? And I was like, Hey, look, man, if you take care of me, I'll take, it, it almost felt like a mob movie. Like if ever, ever seen like Scarface when he goes to, to meet Sosa, <laughs> I was like, look, man, like if you take care of me, I'll take care of you. I just want to make sure that you bring, bring the stuff to me and I'll always deliver on you. And it, it really is like that, right? I think it's based on trust and I don't want that responsibility of a hundred thousand dollar client. It's a, it's a big responsibility, you know, like these agencies, they, they get lawsuits commonly and you know, I've helped some of them get out of lawsuits by fixing some of their troubled sites. It's not that I don't think I can handle the responsibility, but that's not the kind of stress I think I want for my life. You're not the first person that I've spoken with that has built a sizable agency serving agencies. <laughs> because by the time the project gets to you, the impression I get from the outside is that a lot of the rough edges are removed and the clarity of the project is more resolute. And so then you can stamp out your work and make your margin. Exactly. And I think, and that's what that person's paying for. It's paying for the agency to work through all that. How do I want it to look? What is it going to feel like? 
that's why those agencies charge $120,000. There's this a lot of communication that goes through with designers and all the, it, by the time it comes to me, it's like, Hey, this is what we want. And can you execute on it? And sometimes even they get it, they still get it wrong. But at that point, that's their responsibility. They messed up for getting it wrong, you know? I'd like to take a moment to talk about our very own remote jobs website, dynamitejobs.co. People are starting to catch on that remote hiring isn't just a luxury or something cool that tropical MBA folks talk about. It is a necessity. In fact, in mid-March, we saw job seeker traffic increase by 50%. Our inboxes have been overwhelmed by qualified candidates seeking to work for companies like yours. Now, we're working to help both sides of the aisle here. With candidates, we're sending out more recommended and targeted jobs, and we've recently launched a resume review service. For remote companies, we've recently launched a remote hiring guide and an application platform for reviewing candidates for your job listings. We've also allowed 100% of listeners of this podcast to post their first listing for free. And if you're looking to hire for an advanced technical or management role, we also have partnered with recruiters to help you get that done. Here's the reality for those of you looking to build your team or find your new normal. There's never been more candidates out there on the market looking to work for companies like ours. Check us out over at dynamitejobs.co. Each job is 100% open, remote, and paid, aka remote jobs that don't suck. Let us help you grow your remote team, dynamitejobs.co. John, part of the reason I called you today is because you responded to a thread that was titled, Are You Seeing Companies Preferring More Freelancers Over Agencies Lately? Are you seeing that trend? I don't see people looking for freelancers more than agencies. I think people right now, I think people just want somebody they can trust. I think that a lot of people in the digital space, and I get a firsthand view of it with Upwork, right? Because there's so many people on Upwork, so many scams going on there. People just want somebody they can trust. And that's why I responded with that, where I was like, hey, look, what that tells me is that that person didn't trust you enough. Because if you can put trust in somebody and they trust that you'll deliver, it doesn't matter if you're a freelancer or an agency. They're just somebody just wants to be assured that you can deliver on what you're promising them. And that's been my experience on, on Upwork, on sales calls that I've been on, where I hop on a call and it's like, hey, look, like this is what might happen if you hire a freelancer. You might get a great freelancer. This person might execute a great job. And then you might need him in the future and you won't be able to find him. Or he'll do a horrible job. And then you're going to come back to me and, and ask me to fix it for you. And either one for me is fine. So, you you know, you let me know what works best for you. And I think people appreciate that kind of honesty. I'm, you know, I, I don't think that freelancers are bad, but I know where I was when I was like a freelancer, you know? Yeah. What would your business look like if I took the phone away from you? Yeah, that's the scary part. That's what I'm trying to solve right now. I think that the sales part is what I'm trying to solve in my business because I think I'm the bottleneck there where this knowledge of Shopify and what people are looking for, because I have my, I have my ear to the pulse of Upwork. Like I know what people are asking for. I don't know how to transfer that knowledge somewhere else. I'm thinking maybe I have to do some sort of sales process or write down all this knowledge and see how I can transfer it. But I think that sales 
would die, but I think it stays steady because we do have these agencies that are consistently bringing work and I have a project manager that works with them. I think it would stay alive, but it won't grow. It's a case of the cobbler's shoes. Like there's a great Vern Harnish book about growing firms and agencies, and he talks a lot about services. He observes that it's often the case that the company will have a hole where the founder's great. So if the founder's like a really good salesperson, then like the company will often not have a sales element to it because why would they need one? They got this great salesperson, you know? Yeah, man, that, you're scaring me now. Now I'm, I mean, I've known that. And I know that to hire a salesperson is not easy. I, I read all the time nightmare stories of people hiring salespeople. And, and I honestly, I don't feel like I do sales. I honestly feel like I'm just conversing with people and figuring out what, what it is that they actually want. And if that person doesn't know what they want, then I can't help them. Well, let's dig into your expertise here because you said something that sparked my interest, which is you said, I'm quoting some of the thread where you were talking about some people are basically saying when they their prospect knows they're an agency, they get a cold response. And they're worried that being an agency and because people have been burned by agencies in the past, that it's a challenge that they have to overcome in their sales process. And so you write, a partner shares liability, promises results, and doesn't need to be managed. You're sort of comparing this partnership angle to a freelancer. So you go on to say, if you can share that in your sales process and actually mean it, I think you can convert some of those telling you they don't hire agencies. Just my experience, happy to share some stories and scripts. So John, I called you to share some stories and scripts. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So that partner that I mentioned in Chicago, that wasn't built overnight. You know, you don't, you don't get to see uh, Sosa overnight. I remember the project came in and it was a project manager and he's like, hey, I need this done by tomorrow. It was very basic WordPress stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, what happened here? And he's like, somebody dropped the ball. So I got it done. And then he said, okay, cool. That project manager gave me another project. He's like, this one is, is having trouble in our agency. Can you help me solve it? So I solved it. And that one was a lot more difficult. And I said, hey, the project manager's name was Ben. I said, hey, Ben, do you mind if I, you know, if you get on a call with, with your boss, I want to talk to him and I want to tell him that we were able to solve two of his troubled projects. And he's like, yeah, for sure. You helped me save my job too. So he conferenced me on a call with him and I said, hey, look, you know, I was able to save two of your troubled projects. Why don't you give us more of these? I'm even willing to do some of these for delayed terms until meaning if you don't have to pay me up front for them. After we solve your issue, you can pay us. And he was like, okay, I like that. We took a couple of their troubled projects, some of them that they were in current lawsuits for, and we fixed them. And that started this relationship where they were no longer looking for freelancers. They wanted to work with us. And I took that kind of experience and applied it to other agencies that reached out to me. I mean, one of the angles you brought up earlier in the conversation too, is that it's often the case, I think, that agencies have a big price point for the kind of work they want to do and they have a sales process around that price point. It looks like you're kind of coming in from a different angle, which is offering free work, free advice, or really affordable problem solving. And then I guess the question with that is it's, it's obvious to me how that builds trust. Then 
is it possible to scale up what you can charge them then without, or you just become the free guy or whatever? <laughs> That's a good question. I think, so what I see happen a lot, especially in this online space is everyone says charge more or get the money up front or get them on retainer. And I think that when you take that approach, the person on the other side can feel it, right? Like this person just wants to take my money. Sometimes people, it's not that they don't want to pay. It's just that they, it's kind of scary to just give your money to somebody, especially through the internet, right? So like, why not get on a a call like this and and show your face? Maybe you've gotten burned before, or maybe things have been expensive before. What, What can I do to, so you to have trust in me? Do you want me to just give it to you and you pay me at the end? But I need to make sure that you pay me at the end. I've never gotten burned with that. I think that the world is is a good place inherently. I think that we just need to practice that. For me, it's like if they don't pay me, like that's really like a burn on them. Like they lost a great partnership, especially when they're looking for work to get done. After having been an entrepreneur for three and a half years and given up on your good job, what's your analysis of that choice looking backwards? The best thing I've ever done. You know, I was worried my first two years. I was like, man, I'm not, you know, what am I going to do? I'm not making enough money. I'm not making as much as I was before. Like, did I pick the right choice? You deliver sometimes shoddy product and and you're like, man, am I an imposter? Like, am I faking this to you, you know? But then the third year really started to make sense for me because I, I found the niche. I found the team. I started to feel a lot more comfortable when I was doing I real like I got good at what I knew I was good at. And now I'm back to making the money I was making before and I have the freedom that I want. It sounds like a, like one of those gurus, right? But really it, it it took me 3 years to feel really happy with where I'm at. You know, there's a lot of ups and downs in the in in those 3 years, but now I feel stable with where I'm at. And it's exciting because with the team, they're, the developers, they're a lot smarter than I am. They have ideas where, you know, they're always identifying things that we work on with clients and they're like, hey, why don't we make a plugin for that? Or why don't we make this for that? Like, let me make it and then we can just work on that. It's a lot cooler than just me on Upwork, you know, hiring three people to help me fulfill a job. We have, I have a, a team of people that are, are looking to, to make things better. That's a cool feeling. You have an asset. <laughs> you own something. That's exactly it. People come and go, right? Like employees come and go. I don't even call them employees. We're a team. I'm no different than you guys. You know, people come and go, but I, I think these guys, like, I think they're really, truly grateful for being able to, they have the same lifestyle I have. They can live and work from wherever. I have I have one developer that he goes to Colombia. He, he he lives the digital nomad life. And before this, he he didn't. So I don't know. Like, I, I think, like you said, I'm building an asset. And I think these guys are here for the, for the long haul. They're like entrepreneurs by heart. Is that at all problematic, by the way? Having entrepreneurial people on your team? I thought about that a lot. So the funny thing about developers and software engineers is I think that by trade, I think they, they're able to find like faults, right? And a lot of them, they know that they're not good at sales. A lot of them have tried their own, hey, I, I'll build a website for you. Hey, I'll do this for you. And they realize that there's a lot more than just 
building an e-commerce store. There's the, the management, there's the sales, there's collecting the payment. And I always tell them like, hey, look, you guys do the hard part of making sure we deliver the work. And I'll do the hard part of making sure the money's always coming in. And I think that, that they appreciate that. And I, and I also promote them to say, hey, look, if you guys have any software ideas, if you guys have any business ideas, let me know. I'll invest in it with you. Like, I want to be a part of your guys' journey. I think that's exciting for me and for them. Totally. So we call this like first 1,000 days on the show. It's very similar to the way you described it like lots of uncertainty and sort of ups and downs and figuring out. And it is often the case that in year three and four people, I call it the sunrise, like that sort of emotion you're, you're communicating right now. But now you've entered this area that we're calling like the next 1000 days or, or the middle game where there's so many more moves on the table. Now there's so many more strategies available to you because you do have a stable of clients and you have cash flow and you have an asset and a team. What sort of challenges are you thinking on taking on for these next thousand days? Which direction do you want to head? I get scared of of having the shiny ball syndrome because I know that that's that's really easy for me to have where it's like, let me chase this, let me chase that. But really, my main focus is to to make sure that the team is always getting paid, and I want to make sure that I, I'm able to have them be happy and I think for the next thousand days, I want to grow the agency side. I'm working with them to build products. And because we've been doing so much work on Shopify, Upwork is just crazy with Shopify. Just Shopify for me feels like the next Amazon gold rush. And I want to, I want to see where we fit in into this Shopify ecosystem, whether it's creating apps, creating themes, or some sort of productized service or software for Shopify. That's what we've been brainstorming internally because we've already solving so many issues in Shopify. And with all the demand for Shopify services, that's what I'm focusing the next thousand days on. Shopify is buying warehouses to, to fulfill orders. Shopify has done something that Amazon can't, and it has some really nice brands on there big brands like Kylie Cosmetics or Kanye West Yeezys, like they have these really big brands that Amazon doesn't touch in terms of like, that's not their market. Shopify and Amazon have two completely different markets. And that's why I think that it can compete with Amazon and it's the next big thing. That's cool. This is the hardest question. So it's kind of like, a lot of people want to become entrepreneurs or they're struggling with their business. What's your shout out to them? It sounds cliche, but just do it. Like, don't be scared of messing up, right? Because I think that we ponder so much and we try to figure out the, the best way to optimize this landing page or how do I figure out my business model. And But you're not going to know any of that until you actually are out there doing it. It's like Jay-Z says, the genius thing about what we did is we just didn't stop. And I think that that's what, what I'm learning now in my third year is like, you know what, the, the genius thing is that I just keep going and I'm, we just keep learning and you kind of stack these things and you get better and you get better. You're, you're going to sound stupid. You're going to do horrible deliveries on some projects or you're going to build horrible websites or make some bad choices, but you've got to take those experiences and 
make it so that the one after that is like an advancement, right? And I think that if I would have known that when I started, I wouldn't have felt so bad for the failures I had. And <laughs> hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? But I'll give you an example of, of a mess up that we just had. We transferred this site from our server to another server. And this client had all their the users in there. And when we transferred it from to their server, an automatic email triggered and it CC'd all of their customers and their customers are competitors with one another. You know, they got their attorneys involved. This was a, we were white labeling this for an agency. So the agency was like, Hey, we have to stop work there. You know, the attorneys are getting involved and the developer that was working on it with me, like he was like basically about to cry when I called them. And I was like, look, man, like it's okay. I bet you that you'll never make this mistake again. You know, we're going to share this with the team and this team will never make that mistake. You're going to be the guy that before we we move a site, you're going to say, make sure you check the mail settings so that it doesn't get sent out. And it's the truth, right? Like I, I was a little stressed, but it was just one mistake. And, you know, it, it, I think it's ironing itself out. But those kind of mistakes make sure that you never make that mistake again, right? It's like being so embarrassed that you're like, you know what, I'm going to make sure that I fix that. So yeah, I think that that's what I would tell first time people like, you're going to appreciate it later down the road. Big shout out to Jonathan Solorzano from solomediagroup.co. Not the dot com, dot co. What a boss telling it like it is from his own experience. And Ian, just some reflections before we get in. I know you got a rant coming up for us here. I always got a rant. Man. <laughs> I was just ranting to some guy on eBay before I got on the call with you. It's unbelievable. One of the things that struck me about John is there's this cool kind of like lingering issue behind every success, which is that founder business fit. You know, like, yeah, like this business model looks good on paper, but is that a good business model for you? And one of the things that jumped out after speaking with John is like, he didn't come with an agenda to the podcast. I asked him questions and he he thought about them deeply and he, he just shared what he knew. And I know you're not surprised, but maybe the audience would be that that's a pretty rare thing when it comes to conversations like this, that, hey, I'm just, I'm just here to like legit answer this question from my experience. And it struck me and it, and it made me think, okay, here's a pretty good sales guy, right? <laughs> like this guy can build trust. You know, he's transparent. And man, this is a guy that I could trust to solve problems for me. That's something we all can learn from. I mean, that's, that's sales masterclass right there. Sales masterclass, Dan, and you're right. Uh, the audience probably doesn't realize this, but a lot of people come onto the show or they try and get on the show. I'd say producer Jane blocks 95% of these people from getting on the show with an <laughs> agenda. Doing everybody the, the <laughs> stiff arm. <laughs> it is always nice to hear from a practitioner that's just sharing what he or she knows. And one of the things we were talking about before the show is you know, this original question that was in the Dynamite Circle forum, which is basically like, hey, am I losing clients and sales here because I'm positioning myself as an agency? Would I be better off positioning myself as an individual? What do you think about that? Well, I kind of uh, liken it to like the, the general contractor. And basically, general contractor in construction is the person that communicates with the customer and then also with the team. So you got a house remodel, you contact uh, Dan, the general contractor, and he tacks on 20 to 30% to basically interface with the team 
and the the customer on the project. And that means organizing the people, making sure the dump truck's there, making sure that the uh, wood is arriving on time, et cetera, et cetera. So there's real value in that position. The issue becomes, for some people like me, if you've done some of these home remodelings yourself, you understand kind of what the value prop is. And if you got a little extra time, you might be able to organize these teams yourself. Yeah. So I think that that's the primary objective of an agency is to create this layer. Now there's, like I said, there's some good and some bad to that. If you haven't never organized a project before, there might be a lot of good to it. If you have, and then you can see kind of how thin that is for you, maybe specifically, there's some bad in it. Now, that being said, I think there's many layers of that conversation. I mean, one of the one of the layers is last night we were actually talking about some of the development work that we need to get done on Dynamite Jobs. We've actually gone through a couple agencies trying to get work done, and it just hasn't, hasn't ever panned out for us. And part of the reason, I think, is because there's too many layers of communication going on. It goes from me or you down to our team, and then our team to the agency, and then eventually the agency down to the developer. So it's like the game of telephone, Dan. I don't know if you remember that when you were a kid. You whisper a message into your friend's ear, and by the time it gets around the circle, it's a completely different message. <laughs> and sometimes with these agencies, that's what can go awry. And so actually, last night, we decided, we actually made a rule. We're not working with any more agencies. We're just looking for one person to help us out. It's interesting, too. And as an entrepreneur, what do I take away from all this? I mean, for me, it's that your messaging in that regard is enormously important. It really depends who you're talking to and when and, and what they're trying to get done. I'm looking if the, a pipe just burst in my house, I'm not necessarily looking for a general contractor. You know, I want a plumber who yep. clearly says, burst pipe, Bob, I'm coming in for this kind of thing. And a lot of times what happens is if you have a high cost structure in your agency, you get a little thirsty and you want to sell every client on everything. That's why I love leveraging Upwork as a way to funnel potential clients and to qualify them so that by the time you engage on them, as a, even as an individual, sure, you might be subbing out the work on the back end, which I think is a really cool approach depending on how your ideal client wants to get communicated to, but also they're really qualified. And by the point you're getting on the phone with them, you know that what you have to offer could potentially be a really good fit for them. It's uh, no surprise, you know, talented individuals start agencies a lot of times because they figure out that their time doesn't scale, right? So it's like, well, I'm really good at development, but I can only serve so many clients. Here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire some other talented developers and we're going to scale and then I'm going to be the one that communicates with the customer. I think my question, though, a lot of times with these agencies is, you know, is the agency good for the person that owes the agency or is it good for the person that needs the work done? Yeah. And that's your responsibility as a salesperson. So I feel challenged, but I'm going to come to you and boss man and say, look, you go out and want, hire one freelance developer. Do you really think they're going to know how to do front end, how they're going to need to do back end, how they're going to be able to do mobile. So for the price that you're going to pay one developer in your office, you can have my whole team at your disposal and you got the red phone to me. And that's the pitch. That's what you got to figure out. And the cool thing about this is you're going to hear people say one perspective or the other. I loved how in this interview, John wasn't like tempted into any dogma or theorizing or whatever. He was just basically saying like, look, this is what's working right now. I'm only on day 1000. I got an enormous amount of challenge ahead of me and I'm going to take it on like a boss. That's it. That's all I got to say. That's all you got to say. That's all I got. Put on your swimming chunks, boss, man. Looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. We've got a lot of fun things to do. Hope you're all having a great week, a great weekend. We'll be back as always 
next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.